Welcome to They Live By Film, a platform dedicated to bringing you film discussion and interviews from around the world. I am Adam Lundy, joined as always by my co-hosts Chris Haskell and Zach Bryant. Hello guys, how are you doing today? Hey, how's it going? Hello, hello. Yeah, I'm good, I'm good. No complaints. I have a long weekend. Um, I know you guys are all off tomorrow because of Labor Day. And because I'm on American hours at the moment, I'm off too. So hey, uh, nice have a long weekend. (laughs) Happy American holiday. Yeah, hallelujah for Labor Day, whatever the hell that is. Um, I actually I have no idea what Labor Day is. I just know I get it off. (laughs) I think this is one of the ones it's like, it's exactly what it sounds like, I think. I think this is one of the first days the unions fought for like some time off or something, you know? And they chose a month for the first Monday in September. Good job. <laughs> super communist to me, but however. Uh, I agree. I should I should just go to work. Yeah. In protest. <laughs> yep. Uh, so uh, anyone have any tidbits they want to get into before we start cracking on today's double feature? No, uh, I've been. Oh, you can go, Chris. No, actually, I was going to say not really. Um, other than y'all can see behind me, I'm in a I'm in a, a real house with a real office as opposed to the little closets that I typically film in in our, in our <laughs> tiny place downtown and uh, visiting parents, visiting your family for the weekend. So um, that's why I have space. I hope my voice sounds okay. Do I sound all right? Yeah, sounds fine. Great. What's up with you, Zach? The only thing that's been happening with me is I've been rewatching Lord of the Rings. So my life's been pretty boring and Adam gave me a little bit of a break from watching them so I could watch these two films. <laughs> so I don't have to get all emotional about Return of the King because I'm a because of that. So that's been nice. So the only emotion I feel during Return of the King is boredom when they can't end the film for the last. Oh yeah, years. like like the forty five like okay, every it's been twenty years. Everyone's seen the fucking movie. So <laughs> the when the eagles show up at the end to rescue Frodo and Sam, to me that's the end of the movie. Yeah, um, yeah, you might like as well turn it off. Emotionally, stage. at that point, yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah, like, yeah, right, turn off. Good. Speaking of torture porn, yeah, the last 40 minutes of that movie, you're like, what is going on? Like, just end it. Um, I'm actually curious as to how long it actually is after that. How long after the Eagles pick them up? How long until the film actually ends? I'm actually kind of curious. I'm gonna pay attention when I watch, but I think it's like 35, 40 minutes. Yeah, That's it really crazy. is. That's insane. Yeah. And then the credits on the extended editions. I noticed this the other day when I was watching Fellowship. It's like 40 minutes, which is good for them. It's extended, so you can put as long credits as you want. But I was like, holy fuck, these are long credits. Nobody's <laughs> watching those credits. Nobody's <laughs> sitting there. I think I kept them on while I went and like did other stuff real quick, and I just didn't turn off the... Imagine if you were like looking for your name. Say you were just like a, had a really small role, and you missed it, and you sat through the whole 40 minutes going, fuck, I must have missed it. I have to sit through Yeah, there's no way they left off anyone's name. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, we, you know, there's that scene where, um, whenever they're in war, in order to get like that thunderous effect of war, they like filled up a rugby stadium and they had everybody like boom, boom, boom on the on the seats. Um, I wonder if they put everybody's name in there. Like, how do you fill up forty minutes of credits? Yeah. Uh, thank That's you to the rugby team. All yeah. thirty-five thousand spectators. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I wonder the credits are still on. Um, <laughs> cool. We're going to get cracking on uh, today's films. Uh, as you'll see by the title, dear listener, we are going to be doing a double feature from a Polish filmmaker uh, called Paweł Pawlikowski. And um, we'll get to enjoy Zach try to say that a little bit later. Um, <laughs> we're going to be looking at 
uh, two of his films that he's made uh, in the last sort of 10-ish years. Yeah, about 10, in the last 10 years. Uh, he's made two films. These were his two sort of most recent directed films. Uh, and we're going to start off with the first one, which is called Ida. Um, I'll give you a kind of just a brief synopsis if you're not familiar with the film. Essentially, Ida follows uh, a woman, a young woman, young Polish woman who was brought up in a convent. She's about to sort of go through her rights to become a fully fledged nun. When she is told, before you do, you should go meet your aunt. She's your last living relative. You should go meet her just to learn a little bit more about your life, considering you were sort of you know brought up through the convent. When she meets her aunt, she's quite stunned to figure out that her name's not Ida. Her name is, oh, sorry, Anna is her, is her is her name in the convent. Her name is not Anna, it's Ida. And she was actually born from Jewish parents who were killed during World War II. And this caused a bit of a, a crisis in her identity. And it also leads her and her aunt to go to go basically down a road trip to sort of discover the final fate of of uh of Edith's parents um so I, I rewatched the film last night i saw it first about a year ago i can't remember if i saw this or the next film we're going to talk about cold war i can't remember which one of these that i saw first but yeah I, I immediately fell in love with this film and the filmmaker and his style and everything about it so um i watched it again last night and i was just as blown away i, I kind of talked about this a little bit at the end of our last episode um about how much I love the look of this film and the next film in terms of how, you know, how they're shot and uh, the cinematography, the framing, pretty much everything about it. Um, but I'm looking forward to hear your guys' opinion because I know neither of you had seen them before. I don't know if you guys were even familiar with them or the filmmaker before. So I'm interested to get your, your, your take on Ida uh, first off. Well, uh, I do want to note that I am like really impressed by the director that he can work with a broken tripod and not have the subject in the middle of the frame and still win awards. <laughs> it's too high. He couldn't. He couldn't met it. He couldn't yeah. get the tripod to sit down. <laughs> I hope he gets a bigger budget so he can get a new tripod. <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny. Um, well, yeah. What did you think, Zach? Or, or do you want me to say? Uh, I, I really liked Ida. Um, I won't go too far in depth yet, but it's a, it's a beautiful looking film. Both of the ones we'll talk about are really pretty films. Um, this is a little bit of a blind spot for me for World War II is talking about Poland, which makes me kind of feel sort of bad because that's where it starts. And it obviously has like a lot of consequences, especially with the Soviets coming in later. Um, But it's a blind spot. And I kind of wish I knew a little bit more because I'm sure there's a lot of like cultural nuance and things like that i'm sure i missed but still like uh i it it has it's slow it's it's methodical in that sense but i I was never not engaged with it i mean i was very interested in what happened so i mean that's always praise to give anything this slow especially something i probably wouldn't have watched on my own in all honesty because i mean if i'm going to watch a nun movie i want it to be big uh nude nuns with big guns so credit where credit's (laughs) um this the world puts this at the 1042nd best movie of all time um which considering it came out in 2013 i know it's had 10 years but still that's that's a pretty fast rise i mean there's a few that are higher in the last decade but those lists tends to be very biased towards you know 40 year old movies um so I imagine that's going to keep, I imagine that's going to break in the top thousand probably 
the next year or two and, and keep rising. Um, you know, uh, I think it's very good. Um, I, I think it's very interesting that he knew a lady who was the, the character of Wanda was based off of. Um, and I think this was a relatively autobiographical story for him, for Pablo, right? Because wasn't he raised Catholic? I don't and know. Kind of, I'm not a censor. I think he, I read something where he was raised Catholic and then found out later that his grandmother died in Auschwitz as, as a Jewish person. Wow. So there's a lot of, you know, self-exploration. I don't, I don't know if he identifies as a, as a nun, but I think you can you can editorialize you know a little bit, but I think some of this movie is autobiographical. And then I think and he actually knew somebody who who was like the Wanda character, um, and that that's something that's never explored that much. Which is how how are people living with themselves if they are kind of regular everyday citizens that were prosecutors for the the enemy, right? Uh, that's that's hard. That's really hard. I can't imagine that carrying that. Um, so uh, we we can get into it here. I don't want to you know give away everything, but that's that's just my first reaction is this is a uh, um, it's an excellent movie. It's I get uh, I, I liked it more than the second one we're going to talk about. I think I don't know. I have to. I kind of I'll, I'll we'll go back and forth on that. The only other thing I'll say it's kind of funny about they shoot pictures list because it's such a general ranking of just movies in general the the movies that are surrounding this are kung fu hustle borat um and uh toy story 3 and Greta grand budapest hotel i mean i think uh borat thematically is very similar yeah (laughs) (laughs) maybe a prequel even I was trying to figure out a good way to describe this movie um, both initially to you guys and then just kind of just for myself because both this film and Cold War have a very distinct style um, they have a very distinct aesthetic in terms of how they're shot like the the high tripod as, as Zach says um, and I finally it finally cracked yesterday when I was watching it and they go to the scene where they first sort of go to the village and they go to the farm and you see them talking to the guy who lives on the farm and you see like the, the laundry kind of billowing in the wind. And it finally snapped. This is Satan Tango on fast forward. Um, <laughs> that's, the, that's the best way I can describe. So you're saying uh, I don't have to watch Satan Tango now? No, just watch this on like really slow speed. And then, okay. yeah, it's, it's it's the same now i just feel stylistically i i found them very similar obviously with pavlikovsky's two films um they're very compact i think i think when i was read a review on this before it was called a compact masterpiece um which i think is a really good way to describe this in cold war they are very economical in terms of how they how, how the plot plays out there's no super dragged out long takes or there's nothing re- there's, there's nothing in here that, that shouldn't be in here or it doesn't show things that don't need to be shown. It's very simplistic storytelling, but in a really sort of uh, aesthetically pleasing and, and quite spiritual way. Uh, I think it's kind of the best way I can put it. But yeah, yesterday when I was watching it again last night and I saw the scene and, the, and it had the 
the laundry kind of billowing. I was like, this is like Satan Tango, <laughs> but nice. but obviously sped up dramatically. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a pretty good way to put it. He's uh he's definitely a very he has a keen eye for aesthetics. Um, yeah, you, you can you can tell he was probably influenced by Bellatar, um, just in terms of his shot setup and everything like that, um. But the, the thing that Zach is making fun of, the high tripods, uh, that's actually what I love a lot about these two films and just how they shoot people um, by not having them eye level. It just gives an aesthetic of, you know, like religious paintings. Um, it kind of gave me like Andrei Rublev vibes as well at the same time. Um, just the way he shoots them, the way it gives them so much headroom. It, it looks like religious paintings when he's shooting people. And I find that so interesting. It's it's such I love when filmmakers can find new ways of of showing people um and, and sort of shooting things because there's like that scene where they're all the nuns are kind of praying. And even when it does close-ups, they have so much headroom. And I was watching this and I was thinking, I was like, I would never have thought to do that. You know, if I was making this film, they would have all been eye level. And it would have been fine, you know, it would, it would be just basic, but just by changing that one small thing, it just creates a completely different kind of image. It just makes it really, really good to look at, really nice on the eye. It's kind of like the opposite for Otsu, who shoots everything quite low to kind of match the aesthetic of indoor Japanese homes, the way everything's sort of low and they sit on the floor and stuff. You know, Otsu shot very low to match that, to, you know, as if you were sitting on the floor watching this happen, if you were in the house, whereas Pavlikovsky goes the other way and he, he shoots everything from very high, almost as if it's being shot by a higher power, if yeah. that makes sense. Well, that's that's kind of what I was going to note. You know, when you talk about like framing with photography, you know, you have your rule of thirds and it's almost like the, the top third is just something we, we can't see, but it's there. It gives us a sense that there is something there to pay attention to that your eyes need to draw to even if you can't see it sort of idea at least that's what i took from yeah i think it makes sense in the in the in the role religion plays in this film even though it's not really explicitly played out we, you know ida slash anna she's going to be a nun but she's actually jewish but there's not actually a whole lot of um sort of religion in the film if that makes sense right. um but it's still by having that high kind of framing it gives the impression that it's almost like i don't know like god or something sort of watching this all play out if that makes sense well you know one thing i found really interesting because you brought that up um you know if this was like because there's that line early in the film something like a catholic jew or something like that which yeah. is kind of noting the irony of that and it's like, you know, that has feels like it has so much more weight to it than if it was somebody who was actually born like Protestant, because I feel like you would have to talk about the religious differences there. I guess with Judaism is kind of in that unique position in Abrahamic religions where it's not just a religion, it's an ethnicity. Yeah. She can't, she can choose to be Catholic, she can choose to be a nun, but she can't really choose that she's ethically Jewish in this pretty turmoil time of being Jewish even after World War II. Um, so I just thought that was kind of interesting to see that because they do avoid a lot of discussion of religion for a movie that's main character is a nun. Yeah, and I feel that it, it, it avoids a lot of conversations. Like 
I don't think the Holocaust is ever explicitly mentioned. Um, like World War II is kind of mentioned. Communism, I don't think is ever actually actually mentioned. Obviously, it's mentioned that uh, she's a, that uh, her aunt was a state prosecutor, but I don't think the word communism or Soviet is ever actually really mentioned. It does a great job of setting the historical context without actually explicitly mentioning the historical context. Yeah. And um, there was another review that I read for this, and I think that, I can't remember who it was from. It might have been the Irish Times or the Guardian or something, but um, they did a good job of, of mentioning that the way, and this is kind of brings me back to Set and Tango as well, but how that's framed with the countryside and the villages and stuff being so dead and desolate. It, it, it points to the deaths and stuff that happened at the end of the Holocaust without actually explicitly mentioning mm. it. So the world is kind of dead around them. Um, and if the world feels, feels barren and decimated. So they don't, they don't actually have to mention it because it's, it's sort of plain to see in the aesthetics and in, in how things are shown to us. Well, he, so I think he really trusts the audience, right? Um, he's very economical, even in the way that Wanda talks about her background. Um, it's brief. Yeah. Like there are some directors with lesser capability of handling dialogue that would have made that a bigger, longer, more dramatic speech. But we see the emo- like we he trusts us to hold, take to listen to that, hear that, and then see her carrying that turmoil and and putting like put it in context of how she is in the rest of the movie and ultimately how the movie ends for her. But like you, the, he trusts us with that, right? Um, there's a, another, I don't think, um, cinem, cinem, what is the word cinematically? I don't think there's a comparison to Kieslowski and how this works, uh, looks, excuse me. But I think there's a lot of Kieslowski I saw in the way that he trusts the audience with the dialogue. Um, there, there's a, there's a, really interesting kind of almost funny because he's so harsh there's an interview with Kislovsky where he's being interviewed by the Polish press and they're like why are you so hard on us you know basically because he doesn't really give them time he spends more time in France and and he doesn't give the um, Polish press a lot of respect and he's like because you guys are idiots you don't know movies uh, and 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 he's very hard on them in a room full of Zulawski would have got along great. Yeah, totally. <laughs> uh, uh, and he he goes into the interview. He talks about this whole idea of basically like you have to you know as a as a filmmaker you have to trust the audience. So, anyways, I I was I'm always drawn when uh, writers can do that, and I think he does it very well here. Um, and I think that helps. And so then you can use things like he uses the whole experience, right? Like you're talking about, he uses visual experience to tell part of the story and it's minimal music. So when there is music, it's like interesting. And, um, and then the, the, the way the dialogue is written, you, he lets you kind of, he lets the dialogue sink in and he trusts you with it. Um, so by the end you're impacted, um, at looking back at the story, you have to make some of those sort of connections in your head as the story goes. And then you sit there afterwards and kind of let it soak in and think about the whole experience. And I think it gets better with the more you think about it. And, and I'm assuming a second watch is even better, uh, knowing the whole, knowing how everything plays out. 
Yeah, and I think as well, what's important, this is always sort of important when you're watching foreign films or, you know, films that just weren't made in your country. Like this film is made for Polish people, essentially. It's a Polish film about Polish people. He doesn't need to give historical context because they're going to know about it. Whereas, you know, maybe us, you know, as, you know, me being Irish, you guys being American, you guys might not know the history. I certainly didn't know the full history. I know the basics. Um, but I didn't know about some of the things that apparently, uh, you know, went on that we'll probably touch on a little bit later regarding the fate of Edith's family. Um, but I, I didn't really know about the extent of that kind of stuff. So, but I'm sure the people of Poland or the majority yeah. of people of Poland who will watch this kind of film are aware of the historical context. So he doesn't need to spoon feed that information because he's making this for, you know, he's, it's, it's a Polish film, he's making it for the people of Poland. He shouldn't have to think, oh, what if these dumb Americans won't know what happened in Poland in the 60s? Should I have to spoon feed information? And yeah. I don't mean I, that obviously is not a slight on you. I'm just making a joke uh, when I say dumb Americans. <laughs> no, it's probably. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's that's why I that, that's that's why I think he he hasn't. He's purposely is not doing that because he he doesn't feel like he should have to do that. He's making a film about polish people probably for polish people um you know like you said possibly semi quarterly autobiographical in some way or he's picked bits and pieces up from people he's known um so yeah why, why should he have to spell everything out for us um yeah. and it doesn't it doesn't change the film like i said i didn't know about a lot of the stuff that kind of is not explicitly discussed but is implied but it didn't make the film it, you know it didn't change how i feel about the film anyway so i'm almost glad um we spoke in the last podcast about how i hate when films get spoon fed to me and how ideas get yep. spoon fed to me in yep. the film um so I, I appreciate um mr pavlikovsky for for not doing that for just making the film he wanted to make without having to worry about you know giving away information that's probably not even necessary one thing um uh, i noticed going through this was something we, I guess you don't really see a lot in film, at least not ones I've watched when you talk about like World War II is kind of, what's the best word? Like the funeral aspect of World War II. Like not the sense of literally, but like we always go through the wars and, you know, from an American side where really the only thing we had happen on our homeland is Pearl Harbor. You know, once Normandy happened, once the Western Front was conquered and done and over with, that was it on our end. Like you come home, you deal with the, the people who died, getting them back. But it's interesting to see things like from Poland, who was the beginning of it, which I guess it's appropriate. We started in September, actually, like to talk about this movie, funny enough. Um, but that sense that, you know, I don't know if you can ever really get rid of that, like that'll ever go away. And it, that's kind of how the film kind of feels for me. It's almost like this funeral type idea of like almost like a eulogy to that type of suffering that doesn't really go away yeah well that that's what i was i was wondering so maybe it's a good time to ask then just on, on building on that Zach, because I, I i like that point a lot do you think wanda is I, I mean apparently he actually knew somebody that was a very similar type of woman to wanda in terms of her career uh, but as a metaphor, she also could represent a large part of the Polish population that sort of either felt they had to go along with it or chose to go along with it and now regrets it. But 
you know, I, I'm not making excuses for them, but that would be very hard to carry. Right. I mean, if you if you were caught up in that and for whatever reason you decided to go along with the invading power for your own safety or for wealth or status or whatever. And then you look back on it, that would be an incredible burden to carry. Yeah, and you know, they're in that position where, and this is kind of where, if anyone wants to correct me, I'm not 100% on this. I know they went under Stalin rule, in a sense, um, after World War II. So, you know, you go under Nazi rule, and then you go under Stalin rule. That's that's tough. That's that's a shitty situation to be in, in, yeah. in, 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 in regardless of anything else. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's a long time to suffer. I'm, like it's clear Wanda's character pretty much does everything she can to try and forget about the guilt, the intense guilt she feels for, you know, for what happened regarding her family and the things she did as a state prosecutor. You know, she drinks, she sort of, you know, goes out all the time. She basically does everything she can to try and numb the sort of pain and the guilt that she feels. So, yeah, I'm sure she probably is representative of the sort of, you know, a population of Polish people who did collaborate with the Soviets and probably feel bad about it afterwards. And I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure she can be a vehicle for that sort of group of people. Um, But yeah, I think her as a character, it's very, very clear. She suffers from intense guilt. Obviously it eventually gets the better of her as well. Um, As we saw during that amazing scene, um, but yeah, I'm sure you could probably look at that and say, you know, maybe Wanda represents the population of people who collaborated and felt bad about it afterwards. And Ida maybe represents the sort of silent majority, the ones who, because she, she's very much a blank canvas throughout yeah, the film. Right. Um, she just kind of observes things. She watches things. So, and again, maybe this would this this maybe this is where context actually helps in terms of knowing about the role of the Catholic Church during these rules, whether they just stayed silent while the Jews are being killed, or what happened. I feel like if that was the case, if the Catholic Church didn't really do a lot while the Jews are being rounded up and killed, if they just kind of stayed silent and did nothing about it, then maybe that could be what Ida sort of represents in terms of the way she is very much blank and just kind of observes things, if that makes sense. Well, I wonder if we can talk briefly about the beginning, because I think it's interesting. So so she is about to take her vows, right? Her lifetime vows. Yeah. And basically the mother superior, or I'm not great with terms in a-, in a comment, Yeah, I think but, that's about right, yeah. Okay, so she says, hold on, before you do, like, you need to go talk to your aunt. She's like, well, I don't want to. She's like, trust me. Right. And so she so she goes. And I thought the way that her aunt was introduced, I thought she was going to be a sex worker because she, she's kind of like, do you know what I do? And there's a man in her house yeah. and drinking. And I was like, OK, but that wouldn't be enough reasons for her to be like forced to go see her aunt, I guess. Right. Hmm. Um, I mean, unless the mother superior just said, like, hey, you have somebody living, you should go meet them. But obviously, that'd be tough to base a movie around. So I was curious what they were going to do with that. And then as we yeah. started, mm-hmm. sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, it was just, it was, that's one of the things where like seeing how they unpacked the movie and the timing of when they brought in certain dialogue about the characters as they were on this really sort of 
uh, sad road trip. I don't know the best way to say it. Really kind of, yeah. you know, terrible. <laughs> <Best laughs> yeah, horrible road trip. It, you know, they, uh, it's kind of, oh, sorry. Yeah. No, I made everything come into focus. Go ahead. No, I was just to know, it kind of remind. I didn't think about this until just now, but that part where, you know, they have, before she takes her vows, she's asked by the church, essentially, to go speak to someone, which I think is interesting. I don't know if it's like this everywhere for Judaism, but I know from my experience with it, before they do, you know, you do your bar mitzvah or anything like that, before you are confirmed to be religiously Jewish, they encourage that as well, not necessarily to go talk to loved ones, but to make sure this is what you really want. Mm. Like, that's a big thing in Judaism, like, um, to go go to mass or go to um, uh, go to churches, go to Temple, synagogues right? and make sure this is this is what you want, because you're kind of stuck with it in a lot of ways, in a sense. I would be surprised if it's not encouraged with all that kind of thing, um, you know, whether it's priesthood, nuns, rabbi, whatever it is, whatever you're sort of getting yourself into, if it's a lifelong commitment, I would be surprised if it's not encouraged to go and, you know, meet people or experience different things just to make sure that you know what you're giving up before it's too late kind of a thing, because they'd rather you leave before you do the vows than become excommunicated, Yeah, I assume, so... Uh, I would be surprised if it's not encouraged. See, my assumption is that the mother superior knew of her lineage and wanted to make sure that she was aware before she made her decision on what she wanted to do. That's that's my assumption anyway. And you could go into that, like, you know, we talk about ethically Jewish, you know, any ethnic group, you know, they have defining features. That's, That's a big part of it. It's used in propaganda a lot. So it's it almost interesting of how she figured it out, whether it was through that or through something else. But that's also kind of goes into, without spoiling, the guy she meets later on dealing with her family where she gets the information of she was too young. They wouldn't have known. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly exactly what I was going to say as well. The whole reason she survived was because, you know, she was so small, they wouldn't have been able to tell that she was she was Jewish. So where she survived, whereas her family didn't was because they, you know, people couldn't tell that she was Jewish because she was so small. So we assume she was still just a baby at this stage. And I don't know, if, I can't remember if it's explicitly said, but we, we would yeah. assume she's a baby or at least a toddler. Um, whereas, I don't know if we want to get into spoiler territory here, or uh, I think it's, there's some stuff we kind of want to talk about. So um, I think, well, yeah, we'll put a little spoiler warning up now, I think, um, yeah. just so we're kind of a bit of free reign here. Um, yeah, because obviously when you have Wanda's son, who we find out sort of later, and this is, again, culminates why she feels so guilty uh, when we when we discover that Wanda's son was also killed alongside Ida's parents, and he was killed not by the Nazis, by the Catholics who were sort of holding them and looking after them, which I think is, that was such, that was such an intense moment. That was, it was when that sort of revelation was, was given that, you know, they were basically killed to protect the village um, and buried out in the woods, you know, so harsh. And it it really just points to the harsh realities of war. Um, I remember once upon a time, we talked about the ascent from uh, Shapiko and you know that that pointed towards the harsh realities of war a lot and you know that that moment in the woods when they're sort of 
unburying the bodies to take the remains to a Jewish cemetery. It was, it was, it was, it was incredible. And when the farmer who had sort of, who had, who was holding the families before killing them, you know, said, mentioned to Ida, you know, why she wasn't killed and the boy was, you know, because as Zach pointed out, he had the features, he had the ethnicity, he was dark, he was circumcised. You know, he, they would have, they would have known straight away that he was Jewish as opposed to her. Extremely, very, incredibly powerful moment in the film. Yeah. And, and just going back to what we were talking about earlier, it shows the complexity of being Polish with an invading force. Yeah. The, the decisions you have to make as the person who's been, you know, taken over, um, it, it's not a good decision at any point, right? Whether you choose to rebel and fight, which obviously traditionally has more honor to it. Uh, and, and, you know, looking back in history, saying you stood up against this invading force, but in the moment, you're trying to save your your kids, your your babies, and your I mean, people do all sorts of things for that. Kind of like we talked about this real early episode of the podcast, but the ascent when we watched that, like yeah, the idea of what would you do? You know, you'd like to think you'd make the right decision, but it's a lot more complex than that, and a lot different when you're actually in the moment trying Absolutely. to make the best decision at the time. Yeah, you know exactly. Right now we have the the luxury of being able to sit there and make a logical decision. But when there's a gun to your head or, you know, whatever it may be, you know, a lot of the time logic goes out the window or logic conversely leads you to a very dark decision. Because logically speaking, maybe killing yeah. them was the right thing to do. Save right. the village, kill three right. people. You know, it's, it's dark, but, you know, those are the decisions. Interestingly, when I was doing some reading about the film, um the this film is actually criticized by one of the right-wing parties in Poland because of its depiction of sort of Christians versus Jews during the Holocaust. Oh, interesting. It was, it was criticized that they even put together a petition to have a disclaimer put at the start of the film to say X thousand Polish people were killed for hiding Jews. Essentially to say, you know, it wasn't all, you know, we weren't all bad. <laughs> you know, that kind of way. Um, the producer told him to fuck off, basically. But um, I mean, if you do that, you have to do it with any movie, and but fills with a historical that's, context. Like that's that's literally what the I have the quote from the producer, and that's pretty much exactly what he said. He said, "Are they really suggesting that all films loosely based on historical events should come with contextual captain uh, captions? Tell that the Mister Stone, Mister Spielberg, and Mister von Donnersmark, because um, <laughs> they had made JFK, Lincoln, and the lives of others." So that's literally what the producer said. He said, fuck you, just as we're making a film that's based loosely on historical facts doesn't mean we have to put all disclaimers for context before and after it. Yeah, so, I mean, I've always said, you know, it's a, you know, we talk about that a lot. You know, this is a big discussion and film is historical inaccuracies. And it's, you know, I've always kind of landed on the, it's not a documentary. <laughs> so yeah, I've, that's kind of where I've always landed on. It's not a documentary. The film doesn't pretend. Reasons. Yeah, the film doesn't pretend to be based on true events or anything like that either. You know, so it's it's very much a drama film. Uh, it just happens to take place at a particular point in history. Yeah, I'm, I'm quiet because I'm just. It's almost like it's hard to talk about this movie without getting into a little bit of a contemplative kind of heavy mood. Like that, it's not a light 
subject matter at all. Um, <laughs> uh, I, but it is very good. Actually, as we're talking about it, I realize I think I want to watch it again because it, I think it'd be it's a movie that I think would play well because it's also not. Um, I don't think it's melodramatic in the way that it's like no. hitting you over the head with the tragedy of it. I think it's almost more powerful in because it's it's there under the surface, but he's not really hitting you over the head with it. He's giving you like little sprinkles of it. And so when there is moments of dialogue from the characters that give you indications of what's going on, it's I think for me it's almost more powerful. Um, yeah, like it's a drama film, but it is played out in a realistic way. Um, it reminds me a lot of Bresson as well. Um, a little bit of Dreyer, but maybe not as spiritual as Dreyer. But yeah, there's, there's definitely a bit of Bresson in here too, just in terms of it. It's not, again, it's not as stark maybe as Bresson is. But um, yeah, I think it it's a drama, but that's not over-dramatized is kind of the best way to put it. It, it, it just plays everything kind of real. Um just before we close on this film, then we have no other points to bring up. Um, I just want to say that this film has my one of my favorite jazz pieces in it, um, Naima by Coltrane. Such a is that sort of um, that slow jazz tune that's played when Anna slash Ida first comes down uh, after her aunt comes up drunk. I don't know if you recall that moment. She first goes down to see the band, mm. um, and they're playing this sort of slow contemplative jazz tune. It's from a Coltrane album called Giant Steps. It's a great song, great album. Trying to jazz, cool. recommend it. The, well, we'll talk about music, I think, a little bit, maybe more in the second one in Cold yeah, War. Yeah, for but, sure. But he's definitely, uh, I mean, he definitely has a, a passion for for, for music, uh, at least, uh, or somebody on his creative team does, because it's used very well <laughs> in, in both stories, I think. Well, you know, I was reading a review because I don't know anything about jazz. I am about as lost of jazz as anything else. But I did hear, I did read like numerous times people say, you know, this is what jazz is supposed to be when a lot of movies get that wrong. And I'm like, I don't know what that means, but that sounds interesting. So I guess yeah. that, yeah, I don't know. I Like I said, uh, jazz is, I think the only time we, what was that movie? Was it Elevator to the Gallows we talked about jazz? Yeah, yeah, because the Miles Davis score in it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you're 100% I, right. I could see that comment meaning it's meant to be played as an act of rebellion in like smoky rooms or something like that. Maybe I, that, that is certainly the, the origins of jazz. Um, even if you know, not, not quite as extreme. Yeah. It's done better here than it is in La La Land. It's probably the best way I can put it. And I like La La Land. You know, I'm not shitting on that film. I actually like that film. Um, but yeah, it's not very, uh, yeah. In terms of like old proper roots, jazz, La La Land doesn't really do a great job of depicting that. I did um, want to bring up one more point before we closed out. So this was also, we talked about, I think you brought up the foreign film that it won for that um, in the Academy Awards. It, it was won also the nominated. Academy Award for Best Foreign, yeah. Yeah, it was also up for Best Cinematography, which it ultimately lost to Birdman. Um, okay. Uh, one thing, which I think is interesting, because I, I think what was what, what kind of interesting to me, because it's almost like Birdman got it in the sense that what they did was incredibly difficult. And this, what I would say is a better shot film in a lot of ways because it doesn't have that limitation to it, which kind of brings in an interesting question. What is more valuable? Something more difficult or something that's executed better just because it may be simpler in a sense. 
Still I don't know. Out. I just thought it was kind of interesting because I was like, yeah, I guess nothing was probably going to beat Birdman because it was that one take kind of thing. That's a good, uh, yeah, yeah, I think you bring up a really good point. Um, is something that's simple but really good better than something that is interesting or maybe hard to do? Yeah, it's a, it's a good way of, it's, a, it's an interesting, you, you can have that conversation with pretty much everything in art. Um, well, a great British bake-off has a great opinion on that. Um, they, <laughs> I'm glad we could bring it back to the bake-off. I'm glad. Their, 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 whole, their whole thing, their whole philosophy is if you're going to do a simple bake, you have to do it well. Um, otherwise, otherwise, you know, you can make it up with design and flavor. So maybe Birdman was the design and flavor and this was the simple bake done to perfection. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that fits well. But, Fair enough. Um, there, I, I know we're, we're kind of talking about ending, but speaking of ending this segment, I, I feel like we have to talk about the ending briefly. Are you all okay? Yeah, I'm cool with that. Yeah, absolutely. Because she ultimately has that moment where she takes off her headdress, right? Puts on her aunt's clothing, I assume, and goes out and has a night. Tries drinking, tries smoking, tries casual sex. She tries to... I don't know exactly if it was saying she was trying to escape, like in the way that her aunt was escaping, or if she was trying to like, like self-medicating in that way, or if she was just trying like quote unquote the world, right? Briefly for a while. Um, but then she has that moment in bed where she's uh, has this guy that she's kind of had a bit of a relationship with throughout the movie and ultimately decides to give this guy a chance. And she's like, okay, so what happens if I go with you to the beach and he, jokingly says we're going to get married and have kids and then she's like then what and then he's like i don't know life and in that moment like it's it's clever the way that he does it because this is another time where he's economical he's he goes back to sleep i'm assuming and she gets up puts her headdress on and goes back to the convent like that was you know she doesn't want any part of that or it wasn't enough for her um how did y'all interpret that did you was do you think there's any metaphor to what we've been talking about as far as a country forgetting the past and just moving on or, or, or is it just the character thing? I don't know. What do you, how do you so, for me, it was, sorry, Zach, you go ahead first. No, you go ahead. You probably know it better than I do. So I'd like to hear yours. For me, it's very simple. You know, she's, she's grown up in a convent. She doesn't really know what normal people do. The only real proper prolonged contact she's had is with her aunt. So if she's going to spend one night being normal I think she's already made her decision I don't think no matter what had happened that night she was go, always going to go back and be a nun because that's what she knows that's essentially what her identity is despite us learning everything about her identity throughout the film she still identifies for lack of a better word as a catholic woman soon to be a nun if she was going to spend one night being normal she's going to do the things that she only really knows and only she's only really experienced from the one normal person she's had for a long time with, which is her aunt, who she's seen drink, have casual sex, smoke, go dance to music. That's what she that's what she knows yeah. of normal people. That's mm-hmm. how she sees normal everyday life outside of sort of religious life. So I just think it was something as basic as that. She was gonna have one night where she was going to be normal, a normal Jewish woman or whatever. And the only normal Jewish woman she knows or knew was her aunt. So she did what her aunt would do. And then when the night was over, she went back to being herself. And that was it. 
that's it for me anyway. Mine, I, I'm going to try to put it the best way I can. I guess where, you know, when I think a lot of the Catholicism, one thing that I'll always kind of come back to is Catholic guilt. It, it's guilt is a huge part in Catholic religion yeah. and repentance and all that other good stuff. So, you know, it, one thing I kind of noticed throughout the film is when they did close-ups of Ida's face, Anna, whichever, you know, would be the correct one here. And they showed of her aunt, well, you know, there was always this worn out look. And of course, there's an age different. But I always thought it was interesting that there was almost like a porcelain effect with Ida. And then there was some, you could just see the worn out and the guilt and everything on her aunt. And it's almost a sense of, for me, like carrying that guilt for a night. Because, I mean, it's nothing she's ever had to feel guilty about. It's almost like a generational thing. You know, even though she was old enough to be involved, but not old enough to make decisions and I almost felt it that way. And then when she goes back, it's the acceptance of that guilt and the acceptance of that sort of generational thing. But I like yours actually a little bit better, but that's kind of what I took from it. Yeah, that's a great point, Zach. And and uh, speaking of guilt, I think it's a great segue into Collection Corner here. And um, <laughs> um, there is a, it, this is my favorite week. So the, uh, looking backwards, the, the week before, the end of the month is when the subscriber package for vinegar syndrome arrives every month. So I now have forgotten Jolly volume five, which is crazy. They're up to volume five already. Um, I hope that they release um, a, like a real, like a Severn style box set one day. I feel like they have the right setup for it. So far their box sets are mostly three films, maybe four. I would love for them to do a mega set. Uh, they also have this curiosity that I had to get um, called The Birds 2, Land's End. So there was a TV remake, uh, sorry, sequel to Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds. And the director even hated it. So it was a, it was an Alan Smithy film. And apparently it's no good. <laughs> but, but it's I, no psycho what? too. What do you mean it's no good? <laughs> How could a sequel to The Birds not be good? Apparently they amped up The Birds. Oh, okay. That's fair. Yeah, <laughs> what year did it probably... come out? Uh, I'll tell you in just a second. Um, it was, so The Has Birds was a 70s movie? It was a later Hitchcock. Oh, Birds was 63. 60s. Oh, it was yeah. earlier than I thought. I guess because of the color. So 63 to 90, so 31 years later, they made a TV uh, sequel. I mean, apparently that was just thing, because, I mean, Psycho and Psycho 2 are like 22, 23 years apart, I think. It's basically, that's just good, wait so till, that's the difference. Let's just wait for Hitchcock to be dead, and then let's <laughs> We can't make corpse. him feel bad if we do it now. Yeah. Yeah, just imagine being a part of that project. It's, that'd be so funny. Um. It was, it actually was the director, Rick Rosenthal. Do y'all know that guy by name? The Halloween yeah, 2 and Halloween, Halloween Resurrection, dude. Oh go. my. He's nice. ashamed of that. It must be bad if he isn't ashamed of <laughs> Halloween Resurrection. <laughs> uh, well, he's, he's later come out and put his name on Birds too, but for a long time it was an Alan Smithy film. Um, so yeah, those, and the only other one that I think is interesting to talk about um is uh well, well two one which i've geeked out about on instagram um and as a preview for an upcoming interview we have but one of the partner partner labels at ocn 
uh, is called VHS Hit Fest. And it's this guy, he's been running a blog for at least 10 years and, and a YouTube channel. And, and he's very big into the world of, uh, I guess, VHS collectors. His name is Dan Kenham. Uh, and, and his first release is a movie called The Corn Shucker. I have now found the movie that I'm going to recommend for anybody dabbling in the shot on video, like regional filmmaking. This movie is nuts. Like it's a, it's a movie that Lynch could have made. If you told me this was an early Lynch like student film or project, I would have totally believed it. It, they you they they have a low budget, but the vision of it is not a low budget vision. It's a very like quirky piece of Americana um, that would be right at home in 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 some kind of surrealist filmmaking like early years. Um, it's called The Corn Shucker. If you have a chance to stream it, I'd I recommend anybody do that. Uh, and then the other one is Agfa's putting out all or, or most of Doris Wishman movies. So they just released the second of a, of a two um, that they're releasing three box sets. And and this one has nine movies. Um, so they're, they're trying to give Doris Wishman some love here. And it's cool because they, they have, so one of the releases was a few months back. And now on this release, they have magnets put in both of the boxes. So they actually like stick together to make kind of one giant box when they're all done. I did want to note on a uh, corn shucker. This is like probably the best thing for Adam. I've seen in the previews that I've seen in the uh, reviews. It's sixty three minutes long, and I've seen the word David Lynch like forty times. So it must be right up Adam's. Sounds album. perfect. Sixty three minutes. You have me at sixty three minutes. So. <laughs> You're like I can okay. give an hour to anything. Absolutely. We have that's it for me. What about y'all? I'll I'll jump in real quick because I'm literally only have something real quick to bring up because it's something that excited me. It's uh it's not even confirmed. By the time the episode comes out, this will be confirmed as to whether or not this is happening. But based on the image that Eureka put up for what they're going to be announcing next week for their I think December or January releases, I can't remember exactly. The image that they put up is a still from Son of the White Mare, um, which I know Arbelos released in Region A, which is a pain to import. So I, I, I haven't gotten, and I didn't get a chance to catch it while it was on the Criterion channel, um, but I still want to watch it. So when I saw that Eureka have teased it, um, I'm excited because, you know, I talked about Eureka last time as well. I love Eureka. I think they put out great releases. They've been doing a lot of great releases recently. They kind of went through a bit of a, a spell where they're just they're putting out just so much kung fu movies, and I'm I'm really kung fu'd out. Um, you know, as every label's putting out so many kung fu movies, it's just in vogue right now. Um, but yeah, they went through a spell of a few months where I was like not really caring much about what they were putting out, but they seem to be back on form uh, with their releases and what they're announcing. So listeners you will know if, the, if if my assumption is correct uh, by the time this episode airs as of right now it's not confirmed but it looks as though son of the white mare is coming to region b via eureka and that will be a straight pre-order from me as soon as i see it drop so i'm excited maybe it'll double feature that in belladonna of sadness and you can double feature oh well then i won't buy it um, no, no. <laughs> i no, believe the arbellos the Arbellus release has a couple of other films from the director included, if I'm right. 
So yeah, maybe it's much more do that like a well. kids movie. Basically, it's like a psychedelic kids movie. It's much. You don't think yeah. Bella Bone of Sadness is a kids movie? I would show my kids that. I don't know why you haven't showed your kids that yet. <laughs> you do it. You you go you do it at the that kids party that Chris was telling us about where they showed Salo. You just do it as a double feature. <laughs> and then you never have to babysit kids again. The parents will make sure that never happens. Win win. Life, life hack. Right now, right? Life hacked. If you want to get out of babysitting, show the kids horrifying films that you yourself would not want to watch. Hey, hey, kids, it's time for a movie. It's called Serbian Film. Yay! <laughs> Which is getting a 4K release, by the way. I just want to note that. They are giving that movie a 4K release. Every film these days is a 4K release, no matter how shitty it is. <laughs> I was just like, I, that's what I wanted to see, that in 4K. And I was like, you know what? <laughs> I was telling Alicia, I was like, I bought that movie when Unearthed put it back out. Just just to have it, just for like small chance of preservation reasons. Because I've seen it once, I'm never going to see it again. I was like, I'm not buying that fucking movie in 4K. I refuse. <laughs> 1080 was enough. You've done your part by having it on Blu-ray. Yeah, like, you know what? If they ever need a restoration for something, they can use that. They don't need the yeah. <laughs> Um, For me, uh, I don't have a whole lot going on. Uh, I did just, and hopefully, if you want to hear me complain about Labor Day, Adam, since we don't even actually know what it's for. Um, so the, the mail is closed on Monday. I have two packages that are 40 minutes from me at my distribution center for USPS, and I have to wait until Tuesday to get them. Uh, stupid labor day um but at least i get paid <laughs> off work so i guess it's a win-win but uh i'm now going to be re-complete again on the 4ks of blue underground i ordered god told me to and uh, uh uncle sam which i hear is completely awful but you know i'm committed at this point um and it's larry cohen and bill lusting so maybe wait it's not the, the, the transfer is awful or the film is awful the film is awful i've heard the transfers look great uh, no, it's not awful. I think you'll like. I want to see what you think. I think you'll like it. It's okay. okay. I mean, it's Bill Lustings and Larry Cohen, so I was like, they're usually pretty good together. Yeah. Typically. Yeah. Um, but I was like, you know, and then um, I keep forgetting they're doing this. But in October, Blue Underground's got um, the Quiet Days and Clinchy. I'm actually double checking. Quiet Days and Clinchy. Yeah, which is some movie that the u.s government seized in like the 70s that uh for obscenity and then the court said hey you can't do that and then the film got lost so i don't know the whole ordeal behind that and it doesn't it sounds kind of weird but i'm gonna probably have to order that in october hopefully the price goes down because it's like 50 bucks right now why are these so expensive yeah but i did they didn't do a blu-ray of this did they chris do you remember i know for sure it I'm almost positive it had a DVD release from like Anchor Bay or something, but I, I don't know. I could be wrong, but I don't, I don't know about the, the Blu-ray. Because I know most of their 4K has just been like re-ups, at least most, not all of them, but most no, of them no, have totally. just been like, hey, this is our Blu-ray release with 4K. Right. Um, yeah. And then after that, the only thing I'll be missing is the zombie slipcover, which I've just accepted I'll never have because I refuse to pay for it. Which one? The uh, not the blue because they did three for the Blu-ray. The 4K only got the standard looking one, but it's the only one I'm missing. I see. And I just won't pay sixty dollars for a piece of cardboard. Yeah. All right, and we're gonna welcome we're welcome back everyone. We're on to our second feature by the same director, who I'm not gonna say. Um, nice Polish lad. 
Uh, this is Civil War. <laughs> I always said Civil War again. Cold War from 2018. <laughs> it's the American in me. I apologize. Uh, mm -hmm. In the 1950s, a music director falls in love with a singer and tries to persuade her to flee communist Poland for France. So this is going to be a little interesting because I know Chris said he liked this one better. Adam, I know this is in your, both of these movies, I think you said are in your top 100. So the question is, should we listen to you guys talk really positively about it and then talk about kind of my problems with it? Or should we get mine out of the way and you guys try to convince me otherwise? I can probably guess what your problems are uh, anyway. Like, I'll be the first to say, this is probably in my, like, both films are my top 100. Cold War is probably in my top 10 films of all time. Um, but I know it's not a perfect movie. It just hits me at a, at a very in a very specific way. Um, but I know it's not a perfect film um, in any way, shape, or form. So I, I'm happy to go either way. I can talk about it, or if you want to, I, I'm, I'm curious Trevor. what you think my problems are because I, 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 but you probably. I right assume I, I assume like most people, most people have a problem with the characters are not overly likable, um, and their their character development is maybe a bit of a strange development, um, just in terms of how drama films tend to normally play out, and even though I like how snappy it is, I know that doesn't. A lot of people feel it's very jumpy from the way it goes from different different time zones without much segue it just tends to jump around a lot i i've, I've heard those criticisms before that would be my assumption because i cannot yeah, is, i cannot fathom it's anything yeah. <laughs> i yeah, cannot I mean, fathom it's anything visual um <laughs> no no, no it's, it's not not at all uh yeah i guess uh, i guess i'll go into it you, you kind of touched on a lot of what I was going to say, I just wish I had a little bit more connection with them. Like, I don't necessarily need like to like them because I'm a big fan of Phantom Thread, which actually came out a year before this. And that's probably one of the most toxic relationships I've seen in that type of love story that's not that's being played as a love story type of thing. And I don't think this relationship is necessarily toxic. I just don't care. And I feel bad saying that. Like, I just. I, I, like I, I was engaged because of how great the film looked. I think it looks just as good, if not better, than Ida. I will say one thing that was kind of interesting is I kind of felt Ida was a lot more. I don't want to say mechanical because that makes it seem, but it seemed a lot more. What's the right word? This seemed, I guess, Civil War. Uh, I keep saying Cold War kept say uh, seemed a lot more free with things, like a lot more loose. Hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and yeah, I, yeah I don't definitely. know if that's the right way to put it, but. I thought that was interesting, even though they're having similar visual motifs. Cold War just had this really freeing feel to the whole yeah, thing. Yeah, Ida is very static. Static is the word you're looking for, I think. Um, thank you. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, and I 100% uh, agree. Yeah. The cynic in me was like, tell me you've seen a Wong Kar Wai movie without telling me you've seen a Wong Kar Wai movie <laughs> as I was watching it. Um, both in the way the characters are, don't have to be likable in order to be the protagonist. And also in the way it just kind of flows between times and flows between eras and stuff. You've just um, but, sorry, I don't interrupt. I don't mean to interrupt you. You just blown my mind. I never, I never put one car Y in this film together. But shit, <laughs> this is like a Polish one car Y film. Oh gosh, yeah, it's totally yeah. Damn. <laughs> and I, I didn't even bring up that. that I thought the first one felt like a Bergman film to me. Like at least the ones that's, I had seen. Yeah, yeah, that's I was understandable. Like, yeah, it feels like Bergman. Yeah, that's understandable. Yeah, 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 you just kind of blow my mind there, Chris. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's That's a, cool. I've only seen two, but I, yeah, I agree. I can see 
Wong Kar Wai from what we watched. Wong Kar Wai grew on me as I just finished his, you know, filmography or whatever, and I grew to really kind of deeply love this style that he does. Um, so, so I think that's one of the reasons why ultimately I like Cold War better. I think if I had not seen um, Wong Kar Wai's movies and seen this first, I don't think I would have liked it as much, um, just because the the main the the female main character is. I think extremely well written, but she's also not the typical female lead, and so it's a little bit jarring almost at first. Um, the The world puts this at six thousand sixty seven, which I, I have to imagine is too low uh, at, with with time. Yeah, I, I keep forgetting this film only came out in twenty eighteen. Um, like it was still so new when I saw it um, first, so it, it feel like it it already feels like a classic. Because like it's already out, like Criterion already released it and everything like a while ago. Yeah. Uh, pretty sure Criterion was like the first Blu-ray release it got in North America. It didn't get a normal one. Criterion was like it was like one of those ones there. It got its first release through Criterion, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think um, Netflix had streaming rights for a while. Prime. It was never someone else had streaming rights for a Prime. while. Prime. This was actually uh, backed by Prime to some degree. Oh, yeah, because yeah, it's both on them. Yeah, both of the films were on Prime. And Artificial Eye released this and Ida in Region B, unfortunately for me. I should say, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, damn. We're never going to be able to get them on the podcast, by the way, if they ever like listening. <laughs> no. <laughs> no offense no if they're, they're listening, but I haven't asked. <laughs> um, um, but uh, th- so this is right up there. Directly above this is 13 Assassins by Mieke, which is another film that I think that's rated way too low. That needs to be in the top. That's good, two. 13. Yeah, that's and then Friday the 13th is the original Friday the 13th is, is right next to this as well. What? I mean, I, they're no, no, you're fucking comparable. with me. You're fucking, <laughs> surely you're fucking with me. <laughs> There's no way that's lined up like that. It's Friday the so, 13th is better than, than Cold War. You've heard it here first. The the six thousands are, are are a wacky group. So it goes drag me to hell. Yes. Then the the I thought the horrible Cloud Atlas attempt at, at putting turning that into a movie. Then Blue Jasmine, then Mission Impossible Fallout, okay. Friday the thirteenth, and then Cold War. Anyways, I won't keep going, but Oh my god. Um <laughs> I, uh, I think I'm this shocked. is a movie that ages well, though, Adam. I think this is a movie that people continue to revisit. I agree. Yeah, I, I hope that every down. time Cold War goes up, Friday 13 somehow goes up, and it's just always <laughs> tagged along. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can see this one getting up to where Ida is. You know, Ida's had the luxury of being out for, what, about nine years now, mm-hmm. as opposed to only four for Cold mm-hmm. War. So, yeah, I think if we look at this list again in 10 years' time, Cold War is going to be up. Well, and uh, um, Bill, who runs They Shoot Pictures, has been very open that the largest weighted list is Sight and Sound. So if any of these films are are ranked high on Sight and Sound, it's going to dramatically shoot them up. Hmm. Interesting. I can't see it being, which I think that should be at sometime soon, the new Sight and Sound list. I think it's the last month or next month. They're next year. I mean, no. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I'm thinking of They Shoot Pictures. I apologize. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I have it in my mind that it's a September time frame, but I can't remember where I where I got that from. Yeah, I think it is as well. I think September, the September edition of Sight and Sound magazine is when they release it. So okay. um I'll be I'll be keeping a keen eye 
out for that. But I, I can't imagine much newer films are going to be included with that anyway. It's just going to be Renoir films, which is fine. I like Renoir, but um, sure. probably what's going to be brunt of it. Um, I, I think it might be briefly worth just kind of going through the the narrative structure. If that, yeah. Just for, for those, if anybody haven't seen it, because this is completely different from Ida, right? Um, it really is completely two different movies, although aesthetically they're shot in a style which you could tell it's kind of like a Pawlikowski style of, of filmmaking. But this one is, is, is chunks of, of time, right? And it basically looks at it like as, as we go through, it actually puts the city they're in and the year. So it starts off in Poland in the late 40s, I believe. And then it watches them as they go to Germany and Paris uh, over time and back to Poland. And but it but the way that it does it is it almost sort of like fades into their lives at that moment and then kind of fades back out. And then as it fades out, you know the time has passed. Or actually it's not really a fade, it's more of kind of a jump cut, right? To black, and then then it then it fades back in. But anyways, but that's that's the way the story is structured together, right? Which I think Zach might be one one critique could be if, if you're not feeling that like jump, it would be hard to really settle into the story for sure. It's definitely done like vignettes. Um, it reminded me a bit of how Goddard splits up Fever Savi. Ah, yeah, um, that's into good, like yeah. different episodes or different distinct vignettes that you don't necessarily have context for what's happened in between the vignettes. You're just the, the characters have grown in some way or changed in some way, and you just have to kind of accept that. Yeah. Um, you didn't get to see them grow. You don't know what caused them to change or grow, but it's happened. Tough shit. Get on with it. This is the vignette. Um. Which again, from the from the character development point of view, I can understand why people don't like that and why it's hard to grow and you know any sort of care for the characters. Um, we talked about economical filmmaking and compact masterpieces, and so we talked about Ida. Cold War is very similar. It's a very similar time. I think it's this one's slightly longer, about ninety minutes, uh, eighty-eight minutes. I think the last one was about eighty-two. So we're only talking about a few minutes in difference, but instead of shooting three or four days worth of content we're looking at like three decades uh worth of content so i think an argument probably could be made that maybe he should have shot more footage made the film two hours maybe gave a bit more room for development i personally don't need that um, yeah but i can understand yeah, why perfect run, yeah exactly oh yeah don't <laughs> he is 12 minutes away from disaster um <laughs> Uh, I, I personally don't need that. I like the vignette style. I, I like the idea of jumping in and out of people's lives. I, I just like that style. It's, it's always, I've never, I don't have a problem that I don't know what happened in between each vignette. Yeah. But I compl- the point I'm trying to make is I completely understand why other people don't like it that way. That's completely understandable to me. But anyway, why the film is a masterpiece? That's a good question. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I, I do. Why are you wrong, like, Zach? Here you go. This is this yeah. is the thing you're wrong no, about. Honestly, no, it's not. I, I said already that I don't. Like, oh, I, I don't. I don't think it's a perfect film. Um, from a just from a critical point of view, I can't sit here and tell you this is a perfect movie. It's a, it's a masterpiece. I personally love it. Uh, it's a ten a ten film for me. I said it to you guys last week when I kind of introduced what these, what, you know, what films we were going to talk about. I said that this is probably the best looking film I've ever seen. And I still stand by that statement. I think this is the best looking film I've ever seen in my life. I'm yet to see a film that is shot better than this. 
I love film. I love black and white. I love the framing. I love the fluidity. I love everything about how this film looks. Um, um, with me, I'm, I'm not really much of an emotional film viewer in, in the respect where I don't tend to get emotionally invested a lot of the time when I watch a movie. But every now and again, when I watch a film um, or a particular filmmaker, I get this kind of feeling in my chest where it's like, this is just hitting me at a particular level. A lot of the time when I watch a film, I'm really watching it from a critical artful eye where this looks good, this looks nice. This actor did a great job in this scene. This direction idea was really good. I, I Films, they don't really hit me on an emotional level a lot of the time. But this film does, Ingmar Bergman films do, you know, some one car wife films do. Sometimes they just, they just hit me at a level that I can't really describe or put into words. It just, it just hits me sort of deep. And this film has that, it has that, that X factor, you know, where I don't, I can't say for sure what it is. Maybe it is a cinematography. I, I don't know. I cannot say for sure what exactly it is, but when I watch this film, all I'm just engrossed by it. And it leaves me sort of breathless. Uh, it just makes me sort of think about it all the time. Um, and I still do. I still think about Cold War all the time. It's one of those films that just in my brain, I just keep revisiting because it's so glorious to look at from a filmmaking point of view. I think the performances are fantastic. The direction is top notch. I like how it's written. Again, I know that's a contentious point in terms of the script. I like the script personally. I like how the story is told. And the music is awesome as well. I know we kind of touched a, a little bit on the music in, in Ida, but this kind of kicks every, all the music in Ida completely up a notch because um, obviously it's about musicians. That's understandable. Um, but yeah, I, I, I love everything about this movie. It's a 10 out of 10, 100% rated a Rotten Tomatoes movie for me. Um, I cannot say, I cannot tell you anything that I don't like about it. I can, as a critic, I can tell you things that are not perfect and why people wouldn't like them but I cannot tell you something that I don't like about this movie. And, you know, I, I do wonder for myself because I did like Ida so much and I watched them very close together. If there is this natural comparison that I'm, yeah. I'm just going to draw because they are just oh, so it's understandable. put together. And it's just like, I like that, but not as good as I liked it here. And that right. kind of drags it down a little bit. Yeah, like the films, stylistically, the films, just as we've talked about, the films are so, so similar stylistically. I feel like, like I haven't seen any of his films prior, but I've seen like screen grabs of them and stuff. And they look very different to these two. And I'm wondering if this is Pavlikovsky trying to create a distinct visual style for himself, you know, really stamp his name down as not sure, where you look at a film and you think this is a Pavlikovsky film. Um, and because poor, you know, basically uh, these two, yeah. Chris is breaking the illusion with some long car Y. Yeah, we'll forget about that part. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, maybe that's how it is. Like he has, he obviously hasn't made a new film. I haven't seen anything about him making a new film. We'll probably know for sure when he, if he releases another film that's in black and white in that sort of smaller boxed aspect ratio. But a lot of headroom. If he does the same thing again, then we know. Okay, yeah, this is a, this is this is his distinct visual style. He's going for, um, but yeah, it's, it's understandable why you draw comparisons between the two. They are so aesthetically similar. Apparently, his next movie is going to be called "We Are Now Beginning Our Descent," and there is no other information on it. It's a sequel to the Ascent. <laughs> be just um, as depressing. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh-huh. Yeah, you know, one thing I, I thought was interesting, so just, I don't mean to tie him so much into Kislowski, but, you know, they're both Polish, I guess, and, and they both, I think they both are very uh, open about the way they look at people and kind of focus on relationships and, and the dynamics between people. Um, and they both pull out very difficult circumstances. Like that's the thing that, you know, for anybody who likes, who does like Kislowski, that's one of the reasons is he tackles the most horrific topics in a very intelligent kind of discourse style. And so you, you can't help but talk about his movies and like, and he, and he almost has like a horror uh, mindset in the way that he makes his films and that the last 10 minutes is extremely important to any Kislowski movie. And I think that I'm drawing some parallels to Pawlikowski in this way. I think if you don't watch the last 10 minutes of, of Ida, it's a completely different movie. Uh, and I think Cold War is maybe not quite as important for the ending, but that last vignette still certainly does leave it uh, uh, in, in a particular sort of style. But the other thing that I think is interesting is they both started from the city of Lodz. So I've been going through... Kislovsky's early documentaries, and he actually has a documentary called From the City of Lodz, <laughs> and that's where he was a student, and um, I guess there's a film school there or around there, uh, and they that, that school and that region funded his first 10 documentaries, uh, and that helped him get his start, um, and so, you know, Pavlikovsky is now specifically called out in, in somewhere in the opening credits or somewhere, I can't remember now, but they specifically called out the city of Luds. And um, so it seems like that's an important city for, for Polish filmmaking anyways. Um, but um, yeah, I, I, I think, you know, maybe that's where the comparisons between him and Kislowski end, but I just felt like there, I don't know if this is a Polish thing, I haven't seen enough Polish filmmakers to understand that this is a cultural nuance to that, to people from that country, but, I, I like the way that Pawlikowski goes and tackles difficult subjects. Like even in Cold War, right? This guy flees and sort of is seen by as a coward by the country of Poland for basically leaving at a time when he could have been bringing up this next generation of young artists and like celebrating the country. Um, but he wanted to go pursue his art. So when he came back, he was uh, in prison for a while. And so there's consequences in the film. And even in this love story, you, you still can't help but get into what was happening in the country in the region at that time. Like he still weaves it in very naturally. Yeah. And one thing uh, that did stick out to me that I remember was at least the way I took it was, kind of, it was of course, a, a criticism towards Stalinism, communism in the whole, I'm not sure. But it was, there was a sign they attempted to put up where it was like, for tomorrow or something like that. I cannot remember exactly what the verbiage was for that, but it was basically about moving forward, which was interesting because all the songs they were singing were traditional folk. It's almost like talking about how that idea is really just stuck. They're really more stuck in the past than they are actually about moving forward. It's just all about what's already happened. And, you know, they, they keep wanting folk music done. They keep wanting the tradition of their country to be held. Yeah, it's interesting because the way the Soviets are backing the project as well, it's like they were trying to make it as if the Soviet stuff was always there by, because in the show, they were mixing the folk stuff, but while also singing the sort of song to Stalin, 
-hmm. So it, it was kind of like, again, we're talking more about history than the film itself, but um, it's almost like the Soviets in power were trying to ingrain the Soviet ideals with the country's sort of pre sort of Soviet culture, if that makes mm -hmm. sense, which yeah, yeah. it's a really, it's a really interesting concept just in terms of how propaganda and stuff works and how, you know, people can be sort of tricked into accepting this kind of thing when it starts sort of merging with things you've already known and sort of grown up with everything, the lines all become blurred at that stage, which is and something that it, the main character kind of saw. He saw through that obviously, which is why he, I'm trying to remember his name. I think it was Victor, um, the sort of male lead. Um, obviously he saw through that and that's why he, yeah. he left really. He's like, no, this is obviously bullshit. Like uh, I'm getting out of here first chance I get. Yeah. They even introduce it, right? One of the characters asks, he says, um, the driver, they're in a van, like listening to some of the recordings they capture early on in the movie. And the driver is like, her voice is beautiful. What, what language is she speaking? And they mention what I'm assuming is a regional dialect. And yeah. he's like, ah, it's a shame. And I, and I interpreted that as meaning like, now we can't use it because it's not like Russian or it's not something that's a recognized language. Yeah, for sure. Exactly. It's, there's no point in having it because if you sing it to a Russian officials who are there, they're not going to understand it anyway. So yeah, um, it's sort of like when Ireland was under was under British rule, the way they changed all the they anglicized all the names of all the towns and all the places. So like you'll have, and we still have them on our roadsides and stuff. Like you'll have the the old Irish name for a place, and then the anglicized version, which is basically literally just like that Irish word, just sort of anglicized. Um, so it's the same same kind of idea. Like there's, there's no, you can't conquer if you keep things the same. You have to, you have to ingrain your own ideals, right? To allow them to take over the original sort of cultural ideals. Otherwise, right. people are going to still cling to the old ways. If that makes sense. Yeah. And you know, uh, you were talking about the official things, and of course, they wouldn't really want something they couldn't understand because it reminds me of. Uh story of uh during world war ii there was this girl named tokyo rose at least that's what they called her she was a radio yeah. person in japan who they used to demoralize the americans well the thing was she was from los angeles i think and she was stuck in japan and they were just getting her because she knew english and her and this australian guy were basically making a whole radio show to actually moralize the americans like to help them through japan and you know she ended up going to trial for this saying she was a traitor to the to this but what she was actually doing was the opposite of what they wanted because they couldn't understand what she was saying that's awesome yeah so she ended up going to trial in the u.s uh she was convicted of being a traitor sadly um that was just and then she was finally pardoned i think a little bit before her death for it but yeah i mean it was kind of a cool thing just to see that you, you know she would make jokes that americans would get but they were just like, oh, she's insulting them. And it's like, no, calling a Marine dumb is just something you kind of do. That's that's kind of a joke with Marines. They're no, not that's... smart enough to be in the Army. <laughs> but... There was something similar in World War II in Ireland. There was a, there was this guy called Lord Ha Ha. That was his nickname. That's and awesome. he was basically he was basically Nazi propaganda. And um, that was that was sort of played on radios in Ireland and the UK during World War II um, because obviously we still had a tempestuous relationship with the British 
even though we were technically a republic by then, um, there was still, there, there was parts where it was basically the enemy of my enemy is my friend. You know, oh, the Nazis hate the Brits. We'll, we'll, we'll be with the Nazis then. Um, yeah, there was this dude, Lord, Lord Ha-Ha, was, was Lord Ha-Ha, like Nelson Munz, Ha-Ha. Uh, that, was his, that was his nickname. Very similar, just uh, Nazi propaganda sort of played over Irish and British radios, radio waves. I just um, love that the Irish hate the British so much. They're just like, Nazis thing, okay. <laughs> but did you ever, funnily, honestly, there's a story of, um, there's a story of this Irish guy who emigrated over to the US to go fight in the Civil War. And he went to go fight for the South until he found out that the South was being backed by the British. And he said, no, I'm going to go fight for the North instead. <laughs> so he was okay. He was okay with slavery. Just not fighting for the British. <laughs> oh yeah, that's the, that's a whole thing. Like the British had to pay so much money after the Civil War to the U.S. Yeah. And one of the things was there was some islands out in Washington that were in dispute called San Juan Island that the British and the Americans both claimed they owned. So when that came in, they said, "You're giving us San Juan Island." <laughs> and it, it was this thing that had been going on for like forty years about this stupid island because there was almost a war over somebody killing a pig, essentially. Jesus. Like an American killed a British pig, and that almost caused a war. <laughs> <laughs> so that, yeah, so yeah, there was a whole thing about the because they wanted uh, Southern cotton. That was the whole reason the British supported the South. They just wanted their cotton farms. Yeah. Speaking anyway, of wars, back to Cold, Cold War. Yeah. Um, <laughs> just uh, we we talked about the um, the accolades that um. Ida was sort of won or nominated for. Cold War was nominated for for sure as well. It didn't win any Academy Awards this time around. It was nominated for Best Foreign Language Film, again, Best Cinematography, again, and also Best Director. Um, was there, they were all nominated in the Academy Awards. Um, he, this film did win, well, Pavel Pavlikovsky did win Best Director at the Cannes Film Festival, although it didn't win the Palme d'Or. Um, it did, however, sweep the European Film Awards. Um, it won Best Film, Best Director, Best Screenwriter, Best Actress for Joanna Kulik, Best Editor. So it was nominated uh, for some, you know, for some Academy Awards, but it did also win quite a few awards on its own. So I was wondering I why see- it lost on foreign languages, like all Roma came out that year. Yeah, yeah. I was, I was, I didn't. I'm pretty sure that um, who would make Roma again? Uh, Alphon Caron. Caron, yeah, I always mix him and Inaratu up. Um, yeah, Caron. He won Best Director, I'm pretty sure, at that year as well. He did, I just checked um, it. Yeah, I'm wondering who won the Palme d'Or that year. What film won the Palme d'Or? Uh, was God, you, can, have, you, you do it because I can't spell that. Uh, it was Shoplifters. Oh, okay. so, oh, yeah, that was a big foreign language year. Like 2018 was a huge foreign language year. And then, funny enough, it wins 2019 on Parasite. So. Yeah, it was all leading yeah. up for Parasite to win. Yeah, Hirokazu Koreeda, our old friend that we never talked about on the podcast, won yeah. the Palme d'Or. Didn't win Best Director, but his film won the Palme d'Or. Um, huh. Yeah, it's always weird yeah. when you see different directors win Best Director when a different film wins Best Film. Right. I always find that really odd. Um, I think it we can talk it- about it. Don't we talk about it on that Spirited Away episode? I think the listeners can go back to that. Yeah, look for look for they look like films, Spirited Away, listeners. Um, you'll you'll find all the information you need in there, uh, <laughs> along along with the meaning of life. Um, it's forty two. We've already established that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the, what's the legacy of this film? I think the for me, like, 
the way this film's going to be remembered well is mostly through the strength of the female protagonist, right? Like she is completely a magnetic personality when she's on screen. Like I'm drawn to her. I think the main actor is good. Um, I think he does a good job. But I think this uh, Joanna Kulig who plays Zula. Yeah. I think she is. You what? She's a force of nature. Yeah. Totally. Like her her scenes are just. It, it's it's the way that they're written, but also the way that she owns the the dialogue. She's uh, you, there's just so much fire behind her eyes. Like you see her as this incredibly like one of my favorite lines of of any movie I've I've seen recently is when they're digging into her past and they say, well, you know, you killed your father or they, they got the story a little bit wrong. And she's like, no, no, he's alive. But he mistook, he, he mistook me from my mother. So I got out a knife and, and corrected the mistake or something like that. Like the way that she tells that little piece of dialogue, it's so succinctly written and it carries such an emotional weight to it. Um, but she pulls it off like flawlessly. Like her delivery is perfect for it. And did you record, did you see that she was also Anita? Um, let's see. No. Who was she, Anita? If you were to guess which character she was in Ida, just based on her performance in this film, who would you think she was? I mean, she looks she she played a lot like uh, Wanda, but no, she was the jazz singer. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah. I did recognize her. <laughs> Maybe I'm insane, but okay, I'm good. I, yeah. I was like, yeah. I'm gonna sound stupid if I guess that and it's wrong. No, she was she was the jazz singer. Um, possibly the same person. Possibly the same character. She's never named Anita, so. Sure, sure, sure. Could be, could be the same character. Um, but, the uh, cinematic yeah, universe is coming together. <laughs> uh, let's wait for She-Hulk to show up and start twerking. It'll be good. Um, but uh, yeah, she's she's awesome in this film. Yeah, I think the actor who played Victor was good as well. Um, nothing, uh, there's nothing wrong with his performance, but I think she just has such energy. Um, she really draws you in. She reminds me a bit of. Um, uh, have I forgotten the name of my favorite actress, Liv Ullman. Um, She reminds me a lot of Liv Ullman as well. She oh. has this sort of very, it's really hard for me to describe the way Liv Ullman acts. Um, a lot of compacted en- energy is the best way to put it. She doesn't go arms flailing, throwing shit around the place. It's all kind of in her face and then the way she talks and sort of venom in her voice. Yeah, and although Zula does when she's especially when she's drunk, she does go a bit arms, you know, arms and legs akimbo. But I think a lot of the great performances in this film is when just the way she speaks to people and her facial expressions when she talks to people. Just yeah, she's excellent in this film. It's one one of the great performances of this century. Yeah, I I, I think anyway. Yeah, I agree. I think and I think history is going to be kind to of her performance as well. As people yeah. continue to revisit this film, so this is a Criterion release. It is, yeah, released by the Criterion uh, Criterion Collection. That's cool. Yeah, it kind of goes sure. with like Irishman and all that, where it's like, hmm, you guys need this release somehow. So I guess we'll do it. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, Criterion has done a good job of um, picking up some of the festival darlings, like the the big the big heavy hitters. Uh, that They've been doing it a lot recently. Yeah. Yeah. Especially when you get these streaming companies that buy up those big festival darlings and then say, we're going to keep it on ours forever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. 
that's very that's very true i'm trying to see what spine number it is uh um, gotta be over a thousand i would think a thousand and five okay spine number a thousand and five like- so so, so pretty much became like pretty much like pretty soon after it went out went out of con then like i said this is probably it's i'm pretty sure this is its first blu-ray release was just directly through criterion um the way that they're doing a lot of their a lot of the uh, like you said a lot of the awards sort of festival darling films yeah. are getting their first release through criterion cold war seems to be the same right they need to do Buster Scruggs and I'll be happy so I can actually complete a Cohen brother series. Like uh, it, it makes sense really as a release, but with their Netflix partnership and their sort of history doing Cohen brothers releases. Yeah. And uh, it, it makes sense. I'd be surprised if it doesn't happen at some point. And lastly, we we're going to talk about any other business. So as regular listeners know, this is where we just give a shout out to something that we watched recently that we thought was good and just wanted to talk a little bit about it. Um, I'm going to jump in first um, I'm going to talk about two things that I've, I've watched recently. Um, the first one was our most recent pick for the Criterion Channel Film Club that we run over on Reddit, uh, the subreddit Criterion Conversation. Although we don't make that the centerpiece of our podcast anymore, it still goes on, it still happens. So please join us. We're always looking for more people to talk about. Um, and we just watched a really, really terrific film uh, called Il Sorpasso. Yeah. Uh, an Italian film from 1962 by a dude called Dino Risi. Uh, I didn't. Re- I knew pretty much nothing about the film going in. Really, really, I went in as blind as possible. Not because I wanted to per se. I just didn't get a lot of chance to research it before I watched it. And it was, oh, it was really, really fantastic. It's one of the sort of best new films I've seen in a long time. And uh, new to me, I should say, as opposed to being recently released. Um, it's basically just an, a, an Italian road movie. Um, where these two kind of polar opposite characters, one middle-aged guy who's just like completely larger than life, the kind of guy that is really great to watch on film, but you'd fucking hate to know in real life yeah, because he's quite obnoxious. Um, but at the same time, he's just, he's just a really bombastic character. And then he's joined by just the most introverted of the introverts um, who can barely think and speak for himself you know let alone act for himself uh so they just have they play off each other really well it's a really enjoyable film to see how the characters develop um the the lead performances are fantastic the filmmaking is really good uh, it was just all around a fantastic film um it was it's my second film back in the film club after i was away for a few weeks and it really galvanized my my sort of re-love of film again to be honest with you it's really help me get sort of back into the swing of things get me help me get back to normal um sorry i was just gonna say i, I just noticed because i was put it on my watch list because it sounded interesting but mm-hmm. it's in the top 250 on letterbox which i just i never heard of it so i thought that was pretty interesting oh, there you go even more of a reason to watch it the, the, the other thing i've been watching recently is a series and uh, i'm, I'm kind of late to the party on this series but i've me and neve have been binging it and we still have one episode to go and it's uh, only murders in the building. Uh, I don't know if you guys have been watching it. It's I think it's I think it's made by Hulu. Uh, but it's on Disney Plus here. Uh, Steve Martin, Martin Short, and Selena Gomez uh, as the sort of lead cast. Oh, so basically, they're three true crime podcast nuts, and they meet by chance. They live in the same apartment building, 
and they decide to start their own true crime podcast when a murder happens in their building yeah. they try and solve it so um it's really good it's really enjoyable um has a really good balance between mystery and comedy um well also it doesn't hold back on like the murders and the swearing and that kind of stuff so it's not like a kid series or anything like that um it's really good it's really enjoyable um it's been renewed for season three um i'm just at the end of season two now um which is they've been it's two separate sort of murders but they it, it does sort of sort of lean into one another pretty much carries on season two picks up pretty much where season one leaves off if that makes sense but um yeah only murders in the building i'd heard of it i've seen it sort of advertised on disney plus here like i said i think it's on hulu in america but um yeah if you're looking for something they're like 30 minute episodes but it's good mystery obviously steve martin and martin short are great um i've always liked selena gomez from my disney channel watching days as a, as a kid um, so it's cool to see her doing stuff. Um, uh, so yeah, only only murders in the building. Uh, I recommend it. It's a good series. Um, I've been watching a lot more TV than I have <laughs> in a long time uh, after watching the new Pretty Little Liars, which came to an end a couple of weeks ago, which was interesting. Um, Is it worth yeah, me watching? Because I haven't sorted it yet. Oh yeah, for sure. It's definitely worth watching. To be honest, the the new Pretty Little Liars. There's, it's it's worth watching just for the horror references alone. That's oh yeah, where I was getting most of my joy out of it, to be honest with you, as opposed to the actual story itself. Yeah, there's a group I'm on where they keep talking about like all the references on it because it's a horror group, and there's like this is like every five minutes. There's literally an episode called "The Night He Came Home." <laughs> so there, it's it's chock they're full not of shy. References. No, they're really not shy with their references. The dude goes around wearing a blue jumpsuit. You know, it's you know. Halloween is is a big big influence on it, but lots of other horror films have influenced it. It's 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 good. It's 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 a lot better than it has any right to be, is the best way to put it. Um, but yeah, El Paso and Only Murders in the Building. Those are my recommendations for this week. Anyway, Zach, why don't you go and then I'll, I'll finish off with the what we're going to be watching next. Okay, uh, so I'm going to be talking about a movie I think everyone has seen but me. So I finally got around. To the first time, as much as I love Michael Mann, I had never seen Collateral before with Tom Cruise and uh, uh, Neither have I. Oh, good. It's not just me. <laughs> uh, have you seen it, Chris? No. Oh, wow. Okay. Because I've always ta- I've been recommended a ton of times. So I'll go over <laughs> it. Uh, so essentially, the whole plot's pretty simple. Um, it's about Jamie Foxx plays this like taxi driver who's in a temporary job, even though he's been there for like 12 years. And uh, one night at the airport, uh, Tom Cruise gets into his car and it turns out he's a hitman and he is forced to drive him around from hit to hit um, and to do certain things to get this job done for him uh, against his will. It's um, It was one of the first movies that was mostly shot on digital um, because this was still in the middle of the big digital versus film thing in the early 2000s. So he, man is very much went to digital. He, he likes digital a lot. Um, so it was interesting to learn this had a 4K because it was shot in 1080p. But either way, uh, great movie. I, I really enjoyed it. And the reason I took so long to watch it is because it's this, and if you ignore Heat, this and Thief are ones that are just so recommended in man's filmography. And I think Thief is so boring. I think it's so boring. 
like everyone says oh like it's a uh, heat was a spiritual like successor of thief and i'm like no heat was actually fun (laughs) (laughs) i wasn't bored to tears with it like i was for Thief. so i just kept putting it off because i'm the type you know when it comes to man i love last of the mohicans i like uh i even like public enemies um i love heat so you know i'm a fan of his work in general i just never got to collateral it's just it's just a lot of fun like uh, collaterals it's when people talk about it being one of tom cruise's best roles i agree it's that in les grossman from tropic thunder um when he actually plays against what he normally does he does a great yeah, job. yeah yeah he's a great as a psychopath like that should it's really not surprising but he does a really good as a psychopath magnolia too have you seen that it's been a long time but yeah i've seen magnolia he's he's good in that too i need to rewatch it but it's like three hours long and i'm just like yeah. i'll get to it eventually <laughs> tom cruise is great i uh, i like tom cruise a lot not I as a human being, yeah. but as an actor, I like Tom Cruise. Like my girlfriend always complains every time I watch a movie with Tom Cruise in, and I was like, "Name one movie of his you hate," and she can't do it. I was like, "Yeah, exactly." Or yes. she'll bring up the Mummy, and I was like, "Everyone hated the Mummy, so it's okay." Yeah, only that one counts. <laughs> <laughs> so, what about you, Chris? You want to finish up for us? Yeah. So quickly, I'll talk about what I watched, and then I'll, I'll dive into what we're going to be watching next. Um, I believe I spoke about the first Dead or Alive movie on here, the Takashi Miike Dead or Alive a few weeks back. So I finished, I did okay. I finished the trilogy and I just want to point people to this because like, you know, there's two sides of Takashi Miike. A lot of people know him for Audition and and, um, Ichi the Killer and Visitor Q where he really goes off the wall and and has some fun um, in the dark side of, I don't know, humanity or fantasy. Uh, and I love that part of him as well. But what he's done with this Dead or Alive trilogy is kind of remarkable because he basically starts off with this real explosive, crazy off-the-wall action movie. And then the second story, he, he, he draws it down and, and makes it a little bit more intimate and about these two assassins that go back and they, and they find their, their roots and their family. Uh, and there's this strange kind of analogy where as they, in the second half of their life, they have like a reawakening and they realize that they have this skill to kill, but they want to go back and, and um, do it for good, like kill for, for a cause. <laughs> so they donate all the money from their killings to, to giving kids in, in poor countries uh, vaccines and medicine. And so as they do it, they actually get angel's wings. And un- underlying all the story of the first two movies is this supernatural element that, or it's hard to explain, like he never really goes into it, but it's kind of this imagery that's there in the first two movies. And then what you, the third film, it jumps forward 300 years into the future. And you, and there's this whole history with these two assassins that are now um, different characters in there. And they're, I don't want to spoil too much, but they're essentially, they're actually called replicants from like from the Blade Runner. Um, franchise, and I don't think there's a direct tie to Blade Runner, but they're actually called replicants, and they're these lifelike, you know, uh, uh, robots. And then the last 20 minutes of Dead or Alive 3 makes sense of the whole story and ties it all in together in a way that it's not, it's not the most artistic thing ever done. It's not the most perfectly crafted thing ever done, but I think it would be a surprise for people that that aren't familiar with Nick's work. So. 
I I would strongly Arrow has a release that has all three of them. I'm sure they're on the Arrow player, but I would encourage anybody to give them a shot. I think they'd be surprised. It's like um, with Park, how there's always like the Handmaiden. You know, he's it's still like kind of in his wheelhouse, but not exactly. Like it's still different for him. Yeah, I don't know. It's always I guess that's the advantage to making like 28 movies a year is you get to explore yourself like every totally. way possible. Totally. I was so confused. I thought you were talking about that shitty Jamie Presley movie from the early 2000s. <laughs> is it called Dead or Alive? Yeah. No, that's not the one. <laughs> it was like this because because it was like a, it was like if I remember correctly, it was like it was like martial arts action movie based on like a video game franchise or something. Yeah, there is so, a video game called that. Yeah. Yeah. So okay, that makes a lot more sense. I thought I thought uh, you would bull you bull made it, but apparently it was a dude called Corey Ewan. Um, okay. Can you see, nice. I thought he was talking about the Bon Jovi song the whole time. <laughs> I thought he was talking about the band Dead or Alive. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, check it out if you get a chance. Now, as far as what we're watching next, so I would, I th- this whole format is kind of it's tripping me up because like, it's like you know the world's my oyster now, so I have to figure out like a theme that makes sense and. Given that I went all over the place, but one thing that kind of stuck out to me is with Valerie in her week of wonders, we had kind of dabbled in surrealism and I love surrealism. So, you know, we talked about that. I was kind of conflicted with that uh, content of that film, but I love the way it was made. So I started digging into what could be the end of a surrealist September, if we want to call it that. And uh, I had an idea that I hope y'all are okay with. So if you look at John Cocteau, he only made eight feature films. He's probably most famous for Beauty and the Beast. Um, But according to research, his Orphic trilogy is his most artistic and most surreal. Uh, And they're all short films. So the first one is an hour. The second one is maybe maybe a little bit closer to two hours. But the third one is only an hour and a half. And so I, I'd like to propose that for the next time we meet, we do have an extra week because of my vacation, that we talk about the Orphic Trilogy from Cocteau. Oh, look yes. at that. Can so, you give me the name of the first I've ones? I'll seen, make sure I had the right ones. I've already seen two out of three. So. Great. So the first one's called The Blood of a Poet, and it is Cocteau's first feature film. Second one is just called Orpheus. And third one is called Testament of Orpheus, and it is his last feature film. Bonkers film. Question, did you talk, did one of you guys talk about this on any other business? Because yeah. I already had one of them on my watch list. Um, it came up, or, the Orphic trilogy, Adam talked about it in one of the episodes. I can't remember exactly the context, but it, it has come up before. Because I had I had blood of a poet on my watch list, and I'm like, why? Yeah. I mean, that's cool. I just don't know where that came from. That's the one I haven't seen. I don't think. Maybe I've seen them all. I definitely have seen the latter two. I don't think I've seen the first one. Yeah, he's an interesting all, guy. Yeah, like, they're all on made, Max, so that's good. He made a movie in 1932, and then that's blood of a poet, and then he didn't make Beauty and the Beast until 46. He wasn't and a filmmaker. Then, he was a he was a poet and a writer. So you know, filmmaking was just kind of another way of of being an artist. You know, that wasn't 
his first love, if that's, you get me. You know, it's like Tom point. Ford. It's like, oh, why is Tom Ford only made like two movies? Because he's busy. <laughs> he's got yeah. other things to do. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. But no, I, I, okay. These seem interesting. So are they direct like sequels and stuff, or are they like thematic trilogy? Oh, it's best to just watch them. I, okay. I, I can't uh, say uh, anything about the first. The, the one that's just called Orpheus or Orfe in French, that's like the only one that's like a proper narrative film. Okay. The next one after that is just pure like surrealism that sort of plays with art and plays with like the idea of that being a film. Um, it's really weird. Okay. <laughs> I can't really speak the for the first one. But yeah, based on the description of Blood of a Poet, it's closer to the it, it's a apparently a bookend with Testament of Orpheus. So apparently, like he, he began and ended his career with a piece of surrealist art. So it looks like uh at when maybe when Adam rewatches uh well when he watches the first one for the first time, he'll change his score for the third one, which he gave three stars. Yeah. I don't even remember. I'm gonna have to watch all three of them again because I don't even remember it, to be honest with you. Uh, I definitely haven't seen the first one. I've just checked. Um, I have seen the latter two, but I I don't I, I don't remember them enough to be able to sit here and tell you why they're not good. So um, right, well, here we go. I remember Orpheus having really really cool visual effects. You didn't even rate Orpheus. You didn't even bother. I thought I said I had it listed as four stars. Maybe I just said that I saw it. Yeah, because right now it just says it just says you saw it. Um, oh yeah, this is probably one of those ones. The year I joined Letterbox, I was keeping a separate sort of physical diary of all the films I had watched, but I didn't rate them. I just kind of put them in that I saw them, if that makes sense. Um, I just marked them with the little eye symbol on Letterbox. Gotcha. Um, so that's probably why that was. Um, but yeah, I remember Orpheus having really cool visual effects. I think they're all going to be pretty. I think they're all pretty artistic anyway. So yeah, I, I'm interested in revisiting the, the you know two of them and seeing one of them for the first time great well, and you know this just opens up the door for me to say you know since we're doing a trilogy but like you know what next time guys we're going to talk about the entirety of halloween yeah one, one video <laughs> yay that's our seven fun. hour video on halloween that sounds just fun i'm looking forward to that one seven hour video just on the first one the way you two get into it <laughs> Well, for um, maybe seven hours on Halloween four. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't. I know you gotta go, Chris. So I'll keep this short. You know, Adam. Last time I watched four, I actually think I like it better than two. Oh, I definitely like it better than two. That's like my second favorite Halloween film. Yeah, like it's really grown on me. Like I'm like, yeah, this is this is everything Halloween two should have been. Yeah, Halloween four is awesome. I think we'll wrap it up there, folks. Yeah, <laughs> before I get too far into it. <laughs> awesome. Thanks all. Thanks for you.